If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. While you're turning there, I will just quickly kind of recap where we're at, at least moving from the last section to this one. In the previous section, Paul's attention was fixed firmly on the Galatians. He wants them to see and us to see that you can't mix law and gospel for justification. Okay, to follow these false teachers, the Judaizers, in this, down this road, it would be to actually cut yourself off from Christ, to cut yourself off from grace. Jesus, he says, would actually be of no benefit to you. We must believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We receive those benefits of Christ by being clothed in him. We grasp him by faith. To look to our works for salvation is actually to put us at odds with Jesus and his all-sufficient work. Now, in this section, Paul turns from the Galatians to the false teachers he turns his attention to them, and I think he's going to give us some warnings about false teachers. We'll see, I think, from the text, four reasons we should be on guard against false teachers. First is they persuade. Secondly, they pervade or permeate. Thirdly, they punish. They will be punished, rather. And lastly, they persecute. These are our points that we'll see in the text today, Lord willing. Again, we should be on guard against false teachers because they persuade, they pervade, they will be punished, and they persecute the faithful. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, we are in Galatians chapter 5, beginning there in verse 7. You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion has not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. You can be seated. These, of course, are the words of God. So again, we should be on guard against false teachers. I think we see four reasons from this text. There are, of course, other reasons. But the first reason is they persuade. That is, they aim to persuade us. They teach. They are intent on teaching us something contrary to the truth. Truth. Paul begins there in verse 7. If you look at it, he says, you were running well. Now, that would be a compliment if it wasn't in the past tense or if it was a short race. Maybe you're recently watching the Olympics, 100 meter, 200 meter, 800 meter. If it was any of that, it would be fine. But the Christian race, of course, is a lifelong race. Paul doesn't say you are running well. He says you were running well. Now, what does it mean to run well? I think in the context of Galatians in particular, Paul is wanting us to see that running well means clinging to Christ by faith. 
It begins in salvation and justification by faith, and it continues on by faith. And so in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul tells us that they received the Spirit by believing what they heard. In chapter 5, verse 5, we see that we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. It begins in faith, and the Christian life continues by faith. It's as though Paul is telling the Galatians there was a time where your eyes were fixed upon Jesus and him alone. You knew you had broken God's holy law. You knew you were enslaved to sin and the ruler of this world. You knew you needed freedom that comes by Christ alone through faith alone. And at some point you changed your gaze away from him to yourself. There was a time you were running well. Right? Your faith didn't end at conversion. You continued to wait for righteousness. And your faith was an idol. It went to work. We saw that faith produces love. This is what matters. But it's not the case anymore. It's as though they're not even running the race. There's a time you were running well, not so anymore. Friends, we should be, I think, sobered by the reality that just because you ran well in the past doesn't mean you're running well today. Just because you're running well today doesn't mean you'll run well tomorrow. Sadly, no doubt many of us know friends, perhaps, perhaps past mentors, maybe even a previous pastor who you would once say they ran well. You felt as though you were running with them and now they're not even in the race. Friends, we want to be able to say with Paul at the end of our lives that we have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. Fighting until the end, finishing the race, keeping the faith, it requires sobriety. A type of sober thinking, knowing that there are some who aim to trip us up in our race to heaven. Well, someone has tripped up my notes. They're everywhere. They pervade. We're back on track. Back in the race. The Galatians, of course, they were running well. We know people who were once running well. What happened to them? Look at the text. Paul actually frames it not as a what, but as a who. Who happened to them? Verse 7, you were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? More literally, Paul says you were running well, but someone cut in on you. Someone who's not in the race, they cut in on you. They knocked you off. They became an obstacle in your believing and being persuaded regarding the truth. Someone, not one of us, has tripped you up. The Tour de France recently took place. End of June and July, you might have missed it, overshadowed by the Olympics also. You probably don't watch cycling. But you might have seen there was a big accident that took place. It was on the last, it was on the first leg. It was towards the end of the first leg. There was a spectator, a French woman. She was holding this large sign that she was trying to get on TV. And she clipped a German rider, Tony Martin. He was um, leading the peloton. The entire group is together. So she's holding the sign, trying to get it on TV. She clips the rider. He falls down, and it takes out literally almost the entire peloton. It wipes out almost everybody. There were 
20 or so injuries. One rider actually had to withdraw from the entire race. Her sign, it was like a mixture of French and German. It said, go grandma, go grandpa. (laughs) It should have said, please post bail for me. (laughs) Now notice, she was not in the race. She's not on a team. She's not cycling towards the end. Her goals are different. She's even in her mind well-intentioned. Go grandma, go grandpa. She cuts in on someone who's there who has a different goal and it has a rippling, devastating effect that ruined the leg of the race for almost every single cyclist and ended up pulling one person out. Paul is saying, who is it that cut in on you? Who is it that's not part of us, running the race with us, who you've allowed to disqualify you in a sense, cut in on you? And to cut in on you, to keep you from doing what? Look again at the text. Paul says, who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? Friends, false teachers teach. Their aim is to persuade. Only they're not intent on teaching us the truth. Their goal is to keep us from the truth, whether or not they realize it or not. Their goal is to keep us from the truth, to persuade us of something that is not the truth. I think it's interesting to think about why were the Judaizers so effective? What makes them so persuasive? Perhaps they preached with a lot of zeal and conviction. No doubt they knew their Bibles. We might ask as well, what makes today prosperity gospels so effective, so persuasive? What makes theological liberalism so persuasive? I think the reason is, is because the message is plausible. In fact, it's more plausible than the gospel according to worldly wisdom. You see, the prosperity gospel makes sense because we're saturated by the American dream. Theological liberalism makes sense because we're saturated by naturalism, by skepticism, by a culture that prizes tolerance as the highest virtue. But the gospel makes no sense according to worldly wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the gospel is not only offensive, it is foolish. It is just downright stupid according to worldly wisdom. We are telling people that the cross confronts them of their sin and they ought to put their hope in a bloodied sun and an empty tomb. It is, though, Paul says, the power and the wisdom of God, but to the world it is foolish. But friends, false teachers, they come today with messages that make more sense than the Bible. They'll take a little bit of Bible, maybe a lot of common ground, and they mix in a little bit of worldly wisdom. Sure, Jesus is a way to God. He's not the only way to God. Or sure, Jesus died for sins, but not to pay a penalty. It's not as though God was angry with sin. He was just kind of joining us in our suffering. Or sure, Jesus came that we would be victorious, that we would be healthy and wealthy and happy. You just gotta pray hard, give harder. Friends, a little bit of truth and a little bit of deceit gives you one big lie. There are no quote-unquote white lies with the gospel, only ruin and destruction. You see, their message is plausible because it plays to our fleshly desires. Be it our desire to fit in so we get a gospel with no offense, 
a gospel that promises us things it can't deliver, like being safe and comfortable. But friends, they are not running the race with us, and they're actually trying to keep us from running well. Paul's saying, who cut in on you? They're trying to keep us from being persuaded regarding the truth. It requires us to be on guard, to be sober. NBC, I would ask you to consider today where are you most susceptible to being tripped up? What persuasion sounds more attractive to you? Is it one that promises you safety or a spouse or children? One that promises you a promotion at work? One that offers you no persecution among your family and friends? One that rips the gospel of its offense? Paul goes on, who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Like Paul might not know their names, but I can tell you where they didn't come from. I can tell you who didn't send them. They don't come from the Lord who calls you by his grace. Now the irony here, of course, is they have been arguing that Paul's gospel is not from heaven, that it comes from man, that he invented it. That's why Paul begins Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 as identifying himself as an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raises him, who raised him from the dead. Paul tells us here plainly, these false teachers do not come from God. You can tell because of their message. It's not the persuasion of God who calls you. How does God call us? Chapter 1 verse 6. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. God is calling us through a particular persuasion, which is the gospel by grace. These false teachers are calling us away from that grace to something else. In the case of the Judaizers, it is the law. Friends, they are after, they are intent on reteaching us, on persuading us. But to quote R.C. Sproul, ideas have consequences. Believe the wrong truth and you'll find yourself knocked out of the race, sidelined by someone who's not even running with us. I would encourage you, whether you're listening to a preacher or a podcast or even watching a show that you enjoy, there is an idea that's being communicated to you. You ought to ask yourself, is this consistent with the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is God using it to call me home to him by faith? Oftentimes through messages, pulpits, preaching different things, people are seeking to replace the gospel with something more plausible, more palatable, more comfortable. Same name, counterfeit Jesus. God, of course, aims to persuade us by the gospel that we might cling to Christ by faith from beginning to end. And he uses faithful pastors and church members to do this, to speak the truth in love to one another as we run our race to heaven. They, of course, in, are intent on persuading us of something different, but their message also pervades. We come to our second point. We consider how their message pervades, meaning it spreads, it grows, both in the gospel until it overcomes our gospel and in our churches until it overcomes our churches. This is what Paul's getting at at verse 9. Look at it there in the text. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. Now, Paul's not taking a break to give uh, baking advice. 
This is the Apostle Paul, not Paul Hollywood. There we go, a few GBB fans in the house. Paul is drawing off of a well-known proverb, and he's drawing on Old Testament imagery. In the Passover, Israel would, would, would recall, they would reflect on, they would remember God's faithfulness as he brought them up out of Egypt, up out of slavery. There was a meal that they had that night where they ate um, the lamb that was sacrificed, they ate bread, and in subsequent years, the bread in particular, they wouldn't use a leavening agent, something like yeast. It was a reminder to them that they had to leave Egypt in haste. There was no time to make good sourdough bread, okay? They're eating probably something that tasted like our, our communion crackers. <laughs> Not very good. Now, anyone in subsequent years as they celebrated it, if there was leavening in their house, yeast in their house, they would actually be cut off from the people of God. This is how serious it was. And in the New Testament, um, leaven, we'll call it yeast, came to represent sin and evil. Now the principle's obvious. If you're a baker, it, just, it only requires a little bread for your dough. So if you're a breaker, a baker, you know, well you might know this, I guess. If you're a scientist, you'll probably also know. Yeast, it's a living organism. Now you might get in a little starter kit. You add it to warm water, which basically activates the yeast. It wakes it up. You then put it in flour and sugar. The yeast eats the sugar which produces uh, uh, CO2. That's what causes the bread to rise. You might then need it to um, create gluten which basically traps it in. But that's what's causing it to rise over time. Just a little bit of yeast leavens the whole dough. It multiplies. What starts small grows big and it pervades the whole thing. This is the principle that Paul is getting at. This is what we see in the New Testament time and time again, that just a little bit of false teaching, it will eventually overcome the entirety of the gospel and our church. Paul wants them to see in particular that you can't mix anything into the gospel, not even a little. If anything is mixed into the gospel, if anything encrusts itself to our gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. Now the Judaizers, as we've seen, They've been preaching, not only preaching, but persuading the Galatians that Jesus Christ is not enough for justification. His perfect life, his substitutionary death are not sufficient. We must add our works to his. In order to be justified, we need the gospel and we need the law. We need faith and we need works. We need Christ and we need circumcision. Paul wants us to see you can't mix a little bit of law with a lot of gospel you'll end up with no gospel and all law. Paul tells us something similar in chapter three around verse 15, if you recall. There he was using a legal illustration. He was saying that the gospel, this promise that was made to Abraham, it's like a last testament and will. Once it's been put into effect, you can't add any stipulations to it. It would cease to be a promise. Well now Paul is using baking imagery. The second you add anything else to the gospel, it actually ceases to be the gospel. It becomes that thing. You add a little bit of law, you lose the gospel, it becomes all law. Brothers and sisters, it does not matter what we add to the gospel. It could be our country's dream, our political party's policies, a different conception of love, some kind of system that's foreign to scripture. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. 
Do not think to yourself for a second that you can make a minor modification to the gospel. If you do, you lose the whole thing. Friends, I would encourage you to ask yourselves today, have I mixed anything into the gospel? The Judaizers were encouraging them to mix something that was in the Bible, circumcision and the law. Paul says to do so would be to cut yourself off from Christ completely. You lose the gospel. You get nothing but law. Is there something that you have mixed in with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you modified the message in any way by adding to it or taking away from it? You might reflect on it by thinking about what is the gospel you preach to your non-Christian friends? Is there something that you intentionally remove or add? A little leaven leavens the whole batch of the gospel and a little leaven leavens the whole dough of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing there to the church in Corinth. There is a man in the body who's having an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. The church has not done anything about it. Paul writes to them. Not only have they not done anything about it, they've actually been bragging about it. They're boasting about, I guess, how accepting and tolerant they are of this man's sin. Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If they don't deal with the leaven in their body of evil, of malice, it will pervade until the whole thing is overcome by it. Paul uses a similar illustration in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Our brother Daniel Kim read it to us. There he describes false teaching as like gangrene. Now if you're not familiar with gangrene, it tends to happen, though it's not exclusive to it, but in one of your extremities. So maybe you have a bad laceration or something in your pinky. What gangrene is, is dead tissue. And there's a certain type of, dead, or a certain type of gangrene, wet gangrene, that'll spread. And so what happens is tissue, more and more tissue dies as it spreads. It begins, let's say, in your pinky. It spreads to your fingers, your hand, your arm. There's deadness that is overcoming your body that if it was left unchecked could lead to shock or even death of the host. And again, the principle here is obvious. It begins small. If it's left unchecked, it leads to more and more death. Paul is writing to us that we would be on guard and that we would do what he is doing in the book. Friends, the key is to deal with it quickly. Paul is writing to them in grace, in love, to rebuke them, that he might set them back on their race toward heaven. He will encourage us to do something similar in chapter 6, verse 1, to restore someone, a brother or sister who's in wrongdoing. We might even say in wrong believing. We do so with a gentle spirit that we might save them and us. You see, it pervades, it spreads. If a member in here is believing a different gospel, it will become your gospel. It will become our gospel. Have you ever considered where liberal churches come from? Now when I say liberal, I'm talking about theological liberalism. Churches that have abandoned historic tenets of the faith. So it might be, might be doctrinal, something like 
um, the exclusivity of the gospel, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the triune nature of God. It could be um, maybe more ethical even um, and doctrinal like uh, that marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman. Where do these churches come from? I don't know of any liberal church planting networks. I, got, I don't know of any Acts 49s or nine marks of an unhealthy church. Sadly, it tends to be the cases that in our cities, that some of the most beautiful, older, historic buildings are full of liberal churches, are full of false gospels. And what happens is that a church over time will make small compromises. If we tweak this part of our message, it'll make us a little bit more palatable, maybe more persuasive. And frankly, we'll have to be less embarrassed of the God of the Bible. But a little leaven leavens the whole bread. A little gangrene left unchecked will spread. It will kill tissue until it kills the host. Friends, false teachers, they aim to persuade us and to pervade, to permeate. They only need a foothold. It's like a little bit of yeast. They only need a few of us to buy in and for the rest of us to be complacent in guarding the gospel and our membership. Next thing we know, we are no longer in the race. We're holding our own sign, saying we found a new way to be Christian, and we're cutting off those who are actually trying to run to heaven. We ourselves become an obstacle to the work of Jesus Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole dough. So how do we guard against this? I can think of at least a couple things. The first is we need to know the truth. We need to know Scripture False teachers are aiming to persuade us, and their arguments are plausible. Our church covenant says we will submit to the authority of Scripture as the final word of all matters of life and doctrine. We need to know the Bible, and we need to know the doctrines that arise from Scripture. This is what our statement of faith is. I would encourage you, maybe this summer or in the fall, with a friend or a d-group, to study through the statement of faith. Read the cross-references that we have there. Be convinced of what's in it. Our statement of faith takes what we believe is the gospel and then those other doctrines that are important for guarding the gospel. Secondly, we need to guard against it or them by guarding one another. Our church covenant also says, we will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully encourage and admonish one another as occasion may require. These the Galatian churches, the members, they are the ones who are responsible for what they are believing. This is why Paul in chapter 3 calls them foolish. He asks, who has bewitched you? Friends, this would not have happened if they were doing a good job caring for each other. It means we need to know one another well enough that we know what we're believing, what we're ingesting, what we're teaching. And then in love, affectionately, we teach each other. We encourage each other. We even rebuke each other when we need to. Our sobriety, our seriousness about the Christian race ought to match the reality that we're talking about. Like our ultimate concern, it's not something as trivial as someone jumping from cheering uh, for the Grizzlies to the Warriors. It would still be a big mistake. (laughs) I'm I'm not even a Grizzlies fan. No, but we're talking about whether or not we're running the race to heaven. Our job is to help one another run the race to heaven. Our job is not to be an obstacle to those who are seeking to do so. 
We see false teachers, they aim to persuade, they pervade. And we see next that they will be punished. False teachers will be punished. This is a reason that we should stand on guard. Now Paul actually in this section intends to encourage us. It's still a warning insofar as we would follow them to their end. Right? If we turn to another gospel for salvation, we will find ourselves cut off from Christ, cut off from grace, alienated from him and his benefits. But what Paul is actually intending to do here is to encourage us. Look there at verse 10. Paul says, I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view. The Galatians, after everything that Paul's been saying, he is convinced they're not going to ultimately turn to another gospel. Isn't that amazing? Just to reflect on the mercy, the faithfulness, the power of God. You were running well. You're not now, but you will be. I'm sure many in this room currently feel weak in their walk. Perhaps burdened by sins or doubt. You feel as though you once ran well. Take comfort in the Lord. The Lord who preserves his people to the very end. Look, it reminds me of what Paul says to the Philippians. Chapter 6, chapter 1, verse 6 there. He says, I'm sure this, that he who started a good work in you we might say he who began the race for us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that makes sense with the Philippians. We get it. They were crushing it. Partners of Paul in the gospel of Jesus Christ, defending, confirming the gospel. They were partners with him from the first day until now, he says. Of course the Philippians are going to make it. But the Galatians? <laughs> Consider again where Paul's confidence is. Look at verse 10. It wasn't in the Philippians, it's not in the Galatians, it's in God. The God who called us, who put us in the race, he will see us to the end. Our confidence should not be in ourselves. That would be to make the same mistake as the Judaizers. We should look away from ourselves and our works to Jesus. We cling to him by faith. Paul can say he is confident because it is God who saves. It is God who chose us, who calls us, who regenerated and justified us, who adopted us, who seals us, who preserves us even now, who will one day bring us into glory. We will be preserved. The false teachers will not. Look at verse 10. In contrast to the Galatians, Paul says, whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. I don't think Paul is confessing ignorance here when he uses the word whoever. I think he's confessing the impartiality of God. That God is not going to care on that day who it is who is confusing his people. They will pay the penalty. He says similar in chapter 1, verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Doesn't matter if it's an angel or an apostle. Doesn't matter if it's your pastor or a pope or your papa. God will not show any partiality, any favor to those who are disturbing his children. Their punishment will be more severe 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 that it would have been better for those people who caused the children of heaven to stumble and sin. It would have been better for those false teachers if a heavy millstone had been tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. What could be worse than drowning? How about the wrath of a father when you've messed with his children? Those who peddle false gospels will suffer severe consequences. God will show no shelter to them on that day. They will pay the penalty then. Paul says they should kind of pay the penalty now too if you look at verse 12. (laughs) He says, I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. Your translation might be more literal. Say something like, they should emasculate themselves. Paul is saying, if you think cutting a little bit of foreskin is going to save you, why take any risks? You ought to cut it all off. Now, there's kind of a double innuendo here. It was common in pagan religions for priests to become eunuchs. And it's it's as though Paul is telling them, your religion is pagan. It might be dressed up in the garb of Christianity, but it is pagan through and through, and you might as well take the full plunge. Become what you are, a pagan priest. We see, again, tough words given in love to protect the people of God. But if you think Paul's words are offensive, you'll think the gospel is even more offensive. This is what he gets at in verse 11. We come now to our last point. We see that false teachers, they aim to persuade, they pervade and permeate, they will be punished. So will we if we follow them to the end. And lastly, they persecute. We've seen this. They persecute the faithful of God who are believing the true gospel. Here we see the offense of the gospel. Paul writes in verse 11, Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Now, it's not super clear what Paul means here. Most likely, the Judaizers have been accusing Paul of hypocrisy. They're probably telling the Galatian churches that when Paul is among Jews, he's preaching circumcision, that you need the law to be saved. But when he goes to the Gentiles, he stops preaching circumcision because he's trying to make his message more palatable. It would, it would be offensive if he told grown men to circumcise themselves. Paul says it's actually the other way around. He says that if I do preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? If I preach circumcision, I wouldn't be persecuted because I've actually made it more palatable. I've removed the offense. Okay, so to preach circumcision is less offensive. To preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, more offensive. It seems at first blush backwards, but we need to ask ourselves, what is the offense of the gospel? Here, there are many things that offend about the gospel, but here in particular, what Paul has in mind is our inability before God. We would call this our total depravity. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. It means that our entire being, all that we are, has been impacted by sin in such a way that we can't do any spiritual good before him, apart from Christ, apart from being made new, apart from the dwelling of the Spirit. Paul is saying the cross is offensive because it proclaims our inability. The cross doesn't just show that we've sinned against God. It doesn't just show that we've transgressed against this holy law. It's not just that we're in debt. 
you could get most people probably to agree with those points. You walk with them through God's law, the Ten Commandments, as it was given in the Mosaic Law. You could probably get someone to agree, yes, sure, they've lied, they've stolen, they've lusted after what's not theirs, they've not honored their parents, they've certainly not honored the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can probably even reason with them that God is judge and should be just. We have conceptions of justice naturally as God has made us. We see shadows of it in our, as imperfect as it is, in our judicial system, in our relationships. You could probably convince most people of those things, but what Paul has in mind about what is offensive about the gospel is our inability. It's our inability to rectify the situation. It's not just that we sinned against God. It's that we're sinful to the core. It's not just that we've broken God's law. It's that we ourselves are broken. The cross is an affront to human effort and striving before God. It demonstrates that our sin is so serious before God that it demands a punishment, one that we ourselves cannot bear. That is how sinful we are. To try to fix our situation would be like trying to wash mud out of your clothes with feces. You're making it worse. This is what the, co- the cross displays to us. It not only is foolish, but it offends. It declares that God is angry with sin, that he has dealt with it in the cross for his people, that he will one day deal with it in the coming of his son. But what makes it really offensive is that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't even contribute to it. We can't even help. We can only do harm. You see, be circumcision for salvation isn't offensive because it says you can do something. It says you just need to be a better version of yourself. And it says God is the kind of God that can be manipulated by your ritual. The cross says you cannot. It, of course, says that we deserve death, but that God offers us life. But to get to that life, we need to get out of the way. We need to come to Christ empty-handed to cling to him by faith and faith alone. This is offensive to the world. To them, it looks like foolishness. If you're visiting us this morning and you're not a Christian, we would implore you to look beyond the offense of the gospel and to see the wisdom and power of God. That God in his mercy, in his kindness, in his love, in his wisdom, And power has made a way for you to be saved when you could not. That God himself has stooped so low that he became a man. That he was punished on our behalf and has risen from the dead. That he offers you forgiveness and life and adoption. And it comes simply by believing in Jesus. You need not contribute anything. To the Christian, I wonder... When you hear the gospel, do you rejoice in the wisdom and power of God or are you embarrassed? Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the world is looking for something. Someone... Signs somewhat wisdom. What they are looking for, I promise you, we are not offering. We are offering indeed what they need. 
which is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and it comes by the gospel, a gospel that offends. Because it offends, it invites persecution. Specifically from the false teachers, as we've seen before, they aim to use both persuasion and persecution as tools in their hands to get us to stop running the race. But instead of persecution causing us to stop, we ought to allow it to cause us to run harder to God all the more eager to get home to the one who calls us. May the words of the hymn we just sang be our prayer. Man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Indeed, it will for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. May we run to the one who calls us home by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the gospel of grace, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that in your mercy you gave us eyes to see, to hear, and to understand what otherwise would have been foolish and offensive to us. We pray that we would continue to cling to Christ by faith, that we would know the gospel, that we would guard it, that we would teach it, both to one another and to our our children. We pray if any non-Christians are here that they would look beyond the offense of the gospel. We pray that in your mercy and your kindness you would save them, that they would see a way that they can be made right with you through your son. Help us to run well to heaven. It is in the name of your son and by your spirit we pray. Amen.